Hi, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to From A to Gen Z with Connie Castle and Jala Brazel. Cultural commentary and celebrity chat from two Gen Zers. Hi Connie. Hi Jala. How are you doing? I'm How was good. your um journey here it was okay although I had a slightly weird moment when I was crossing the road to go to the train station where I was wearing my mask because I'd just come from the post office and this random guy in the street was like you have a beautiful smile (laughs) (laughs) while I was wearing the mask and yeah frankly I feel kind of offended by it I'm like was was he trying to say I look better with the mask on or like you would have a beautiful smile if If you you just took your fucking mask off yeah very odd. I feel like it shows that those guys that tell you on, t- on the streets yeah. to smile haven't really improved their chat-up line in the age of coronavirus. No, they haven't adapted to the pandemic. Bless yeah. them. They've got time. Maybe they'll, yeah. maybe they'll improve. <laughs> oh, what God. about you? How was your weekend? Well, I actually also had a run-in with a strange man. Um, Love it. Uh, yeah, I know. Which it made me realise that during coronavirus, those kind of interactions have really you don't have them as often yeah true so it sort of took me by surprise it was outside this pub and it was this like fairly old dude who was drinking something out of a very large lucasade bottle but i think it was alcohol i don't think it was lucasade right um and he like started talking to us and he was saying that he was from australia but his accent seemed very posh like english posh Mm. um and i mean his life story if any of it was factually accurate, was absolutely mental. He said he'd been in a Thai prison in Bangkok. Whoa. Wouldn't say why. When pressed, he said it was because of illegal fishing. (laughs) (laughs) That he was doing? Yeah, that he was doing or, like, involved with. It was very strange. And then, obviously, we were, like, not really believing that he'd been in a Thai prison. And then he, like, rolled up his sleeves on each arm and he had two tattoos in what I assume was Thai. It's a different alphabet. And he was like, look, this one means in, this one means out. What? So they ta- <laughs> as in he was saying they tattooed him on the way in and out of prison? Nothing was clear, but that was implied. Surely they don't do that unless <laughs> they're like think... no. a prisoner of war. Or no, I don't know. I don't think that was the case. But it might have been like a thing of pride. Yeah, you know? like the teardrops on yes, the face. Yes, exactly. Lil Wayne's teardrops. Crazy. And he'd been married three times. Once to a Thai woman and to Ooh. two Swedish women. Two Swedish women? Yeah. Not at the same time. He said that I specifically reminded him of <laughs> no. one of these women who was called Monica. It was like so, it was such a weird balance of like really specific things and then things yeah. that were just so random. That is crazy. It kind of reminded me of that Bridget Jones film where she gets stuck in the Thai prison. Have you seen that oh my one? God, no. The Edge of Reason, I think. The last, most recent one. I, I think it's the middle one. But yeah, and then like, yeah, she gets stuck in a prison. Does she get tatted in there? From what I remember, that she makes friends with like all the Thai women, and Aww. it's very it's cute, but it's so unrealistic. Okay. Like they band together, and I feel like do they perform a song, or am I just making that up? Oh like, wow! Kind of, okay, yeah, it's a bit wild. And then I think like Mr. Darcy gets her out of prison. Oh, classic damsel classic. in distress. Yeah. We'll actually get onto that. We've got some like rom com chat to yeah. to move on to. But um, yeah, shout out to all the strange men out there. <laughs> And all the interactions we have with them. <laughs> so tell me, Connie, were you a try-hard fan? Well, I think I can't. It's kind of hard to remember because I think I was pretty young. I, I think we were really young when they the books came out. When Twilight came out, and yeah. even the film. I I looked it up and the film came out like two thousand eight. The first <gasps> one. So wow. we were pretty small. I think that was primary school age for us, or just. Yeah, that makes sense actually because. I mean, we'll get on to the the slightly abusive undertones of mm. the books, but I remember my older sister reading it. Yeah. And her basically saying, you're not allowed to read this <laughs> because I was younger and she clearly realised that it was fucked up. Yeah. Um, but the reason we're discussing it is yeah. because Midnight Sun has just, just come, come out. out. August 2020, everyone. <laughs> Fresh. <laughs> yeah, so I was having a discussion with some of our friends about it and my sister's been reading it. So I had a little skim of it and basically not loving it. <laughs> it's my conclusion. Um, I think I think I can see the appeal definitely to big Twilight fans because I feel like if they brought out another, like a re 
I don't know, a new edition of yeah. one of your old favourites. Like, you do feel that like you have to read it. Because it's telling, it's telling the same story as Twilight, but from Edward's perspective, yeah. right? Yeah. So that is, like, that's the premise of it. Mm. Um, which I don't find super appealing to me, because I don't think I loved Edward particularly as a mm, character. You weren't Team Edward. I, I'm pretty sure I was, a, like, solid Team Jacob, which mm. is kind of rare that most people would Team Edward. What do you I'm kind of unique in that way. <laughs> like, I'm special. I'm just, not like other girls. <laughs> You're so Bella. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, were you team, team Edward? Do you remember? I, 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 this Edward? sounds terrible, but I don't think I cared enough to have it either way. Hot take. <laughs> <laughs> Again. Oh um, yeah. I just didn't like... I don't think he's a particularly appealing character to me. Mm. Just He didn't have that much personality. And he's very serious. I mm. think that's what comes through. Anyway, so like I've been re-watching the films mm. to get back in the zone. Um, Why you taking this very seriously? I am. Research. I'm just enjoying binge watching it, to be honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, I had a few things jumped out to me, particularly talking to like our friends and my sister about it. Um, and so I found a couple of quotes, um, particularly that he watches her sleep. I found yeah. quite troubling. And like in the in Midnight Sun, there's like extended passages of him talking about. Like, he's thinking about going into her house and watching her sleep. And then he's like, oh, but I shouldn't. I probably shouldn't. And then he does. And then he's watching Ooh. her. And that side of it, like, I was just like, I don't want to know. Yeah. I don't want to know his internal thoughts. Because they're weird. <laughs> <laughs> because he's like, great. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, well, I read an interview with Stephanie Me- Mayer. Is it Mayer or Maya? I don't know. With Stephanie. Let's call her Steph. Steph. <laughs> um, in the New York Times. And... It was really interesting because they tried to ask her about that, as in, don't you find it problematic that Edward is essentially a stalker and is very invasive of Bella's privacy and is also so much more physically powerful than her Mm. that it makes for a very strange dynamic. And she said, this is what she's, her quote, I feel like you get the sense of him from the perspective of him not being someone who follows human rules. As in, her take was that because he's a vampire, like, social human niceties just don't don't apply to him. But I felt like that was quite... I just don't think that's... That's, like, shirking responsibility for the fact that she's written this incredibly successful teenage romance series that's obviously going to influence how... young people think. Yeah. how how they think relationships are going to go. Exactly. 100%. And there's there's actually a quote um, that I found which was... From Edward, it's, I was repulsed by myself as I watched her toss again. How was I any better than some sick peeping Tom? I wasn't any better. I was much, much worse. Yeah, you were, Edward. Yeah, he's acknowledging, <laughs> he's acknowledging the human rules. Yeah. And he's, it, like, if he were a human or whatever, which, I mean, he kind of, I mean, he isn't. But he's he is being a peeping Tom. Yeah. He's not human. I yeah. Mean, does it make it any better that he's a vampire and he's watching her sleep? Yeah, the, well, the issue is that it's vindicated because then it's also, it's, it's presented as... A, yeah, yeah, and they're both wildly in love and mm. then they have this amazing romance. And yes, it, it is quite troubling. But I wonder, because it, I think the book first came out in 2005 and I just think th- awareness of those kind of issues, well, or maybe this is yeah. just for our generation, I actually don't know have become so much more prevalent and discussed. Yeah, I think there's a lot more um, conversation about, like, gaslighting and abusive relationships and where the line is between, like, a normal relationship and something that's, like, a bit dangerous. Yeah. But I think that's personally good. When I Mm -hmm. I watched Twilight, I was quite surprised by... And and even, like, just thinking back to the books and everything, how they're so young Mm. and the relationship is so intense. Mm. um, Like... Edward says things like, the vast majority of my thoughts revolved around her as though she was the centre of my mind's gravity. And things like that. I think if if I'd read that when I was 14 or 15, I would have thought, oh my God, it's so romantic. Mm. And like, this is what a relationship is going to be like. You're mm. going to be obsessed with that person and, and mm. it's going to be, like, when you see them, everything makes sense. Like, mm. that's another part of the book. Um, I just thought it was such a bad example for young, like, girls especially, and boys, mm. to think that, if they get into a relationship, it's going to be everything. And and they commit, Bella literally commits her entire life <laughs> forever because she's immortal to Edward becoming a vampire. 
and it's just like you're you're seventeen. That's just crazy. She's not focusing on her schoolwork. She's not her career. There's literally no mention of her career. My sister told me I was wrong when I said apparently there is mention of her career in Midnight Sun. Okay. She says that she wanted to be a teach. She wants to be a teacher or something. Okay. But her parents are happy for her to go to the University of Alaska and in inverted commas, which is basically her dying and becoming a vampire. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> and they just don't give a crap. <laughs> they're like yeah go to whatever you need don't care about your future oh poor bella yeah my message to the young girls is don't don't be like bella focus on your education stay in school kids yes also the gaslighting thing is interesting because i don't think that was in my vocabulary when i first read it but it's now become such a recognized well phrase and also actual behavior yeah um and Again, there was a bit that I read about in Midnight Sun where Bella, like, turns away from Edward and says she's going home. And then he, like, kind of yanks her back by her coat. And then she's really confused about why he's why he's done that. And apparently this is what it says in the book. I'm going home, she said, clearly baffled as to why this should upset me. <laughs> <laughs> upset him? Yeah, as in that's from him his perspective. So, I mean, it's stuff like that where it's 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 an issue because it's not interrogated and it's presented mm. as if it's normal and i think if you're a young person reading that and you don't have that many other reference points for what a relationship you know should or might be like it becomes quite difficult yeah i agree so much and i think um as well the the whole storyline about victoria the kind of evil vampire that's out to get bella mm. in the second like i the first and the second film and even the third i think um it kind of like sets up this narrative of them needing to protect her so mm. both edward and jacob are constantly protecting her mm. which i can imagine being very appealing to like a 12 13 year old girl yeah these boys are fighting over you and they mm. want to protect you and you're the damsel in distress like mm. we said earlier but then again it actually seems so controlling when mm. you watch it because they're constantly i mean he's watching her sleep mm. um there's certain perimeters where it's like over this perimeter the wolves will look oh, after her and right. this area the vampires will look after her and yeah it just is so it seems like she can't do anything without a man mm. like being present and knowing where she is or a supernatural being if we're old, being excuse specific. me I made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah another point actually that i was talking about with my mom was um their like sexual relationship mm. which is like she goes quite deep into it stephanie mayer mm. um and how it is quite might be quite appealing for a really young like female reader because the power like the usual power balance in a sexual relationship is kind of off mm. because he's you know so terribly strong that yeah. they can't have sex otherwise he'll break her um so she's the one that's kind of like much more keen to have sex yeah. and initiate it um which she thought would appeal to like a younger reader because especially a girl who might be more nervous about mm. like getting their own boyfriend and like mm. entering that stage of their life it's quite, like, I don't know, it just seems like quite a nice situation where the boy isn't going to push yes. you into anything you don't want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Although the other side of that is that when they do finally have sex, it's that really weird thing where she wakes up with bruises. Yeah, which I is just watched yeah, that bit of the film. Which seems, like, kind of unbelievable now. Yeah. But, and is... I don't know. Obviously, this isn't Stephanie Mayer's fault at all, and she couldn't control this spin-off element of it. But it did. It did result in Fifty Shades of Grey, which mm. was originally written as fan fiction about Twilight. Yeah, good point. So, I don't know. That legacy of it also makes you revisit the original books with a slightly different lens. Definitely. That makes it a bit more disturbing in a way because the violence and the sex. There is an implicit connection between them throughout the yeah, books. Yeah, and like BDSM. Mm. Because, yeah, I remember that bit after she after they have sex and she's like, no, I want to do it again. And yeah. He's like, I could never do that again. I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it's in, like, you can see clearly why someone would take their relationship and make it mm. a more sexual thing. So there we go. Midnight Sun. It's quite a doorstopper, isn't it? It's yeah, like 750 it's pages or something. But if you're interested... It's out there for you to read. Now it's time for Nice Nuggets of News, a segment where we discuss uplifting news stories that might have passed you by. 
So what nice little nugget have you got for me this week, Connie? I've got two nuggets for you today, Tasty little nuggets. Uh, My first is something I saw this morning, actually, in the newspaper. Um, An article about how beachgoers in Dorset formed a human chain to save a swimmer who had been, uh, like, blown out to sea and he couldn't swim back. Um, Yeah, it was just a really heartwarming article. Uh, There was a comment from Matt Leet at Her Majesty's Coast Guard who said that the human chain helped save that chap's life. Oh, that Very chap. Cute. Um, yeah, if you check it out, I think it was in The Guardian, there's a really cool picture, actually, of the human chain. Mm. They're just, like, standing, going into the sea, holding on to each other. Oh, but, yeah, well, really nice example of people coming together. Yeah, humankind <laughs> looking out for one another. <laughs> Love it. Uh, my second piece of news was that two female penguins in Valencia Aquarium have come become parents. Oh, lovely. Exciting. Um, Electra and Viola are a long-standing same-sex couple in the aquarium, and they began building their nest together a while ago, which alerted the zookeepers to the fact that they were together. They were ready. They were ready for that baby. Mm-hmm. Um, they recently successfully hatched another couple's egg, so it was like a normal egg, and they have now adopted uh, the female, the baby penguin. Uh, the gender is not confirmed of the okay. penguin. But yeah, huge congratulations to them. What a name as well. Both of them. Yeah. Electra and Viola. Love it. Okay, Jar, what have you got for me? Um, well, I saw this article on the BBC website, which is about a woman who has a condition that I'd never heard of before um, called prosopagnosia. Mm. Uh, which is essentially when you can't recognise human faces. Um, so it's it's really poignant, actually. She talks about when she was little, she used to go to the shops with her mum and then follow the wrong woman home because oh she didn't, God. she just couldn't recognise her mum's face. And it was, her condition wasn't diagnosed for ages. She came across this article in a health magazine by chance when she was in her 40s. So for a long part of her life, she just didn't understand that this was something that a condition that she had and people obviously treated her quite badly for it because they assumed that she was just stupid or being deliberately difficult um a, an interesting part of it is that she said that she learned to recognize people by their clothes and their voice and how they moved oh, which really cool. is so interesting because i i was just trying to think about what that would be like and i know that for people i know really well if I see them like walking across the park or something from a quite a distance, mm. I can definitely recognise who they are way before I see their face just because of how they're walking. Yeah. But having to do that with every single person must just be exhausting because I can only do that with people I know really, really well. Mm. So, yeah. Um, it's so surprising that she couldn't recognise her own family as well. Yeah, that seems... Yeah, I know, but I think it's it's a part... It's a part of her brain that apparently just doesn't function how it does in other people. So I know what you mean, because it seems like we're sort of conditioned to think that obviously everyone would recognise their mum because you're around them so much and, you know, all of this stuff. But which is why I think it's so unnerving that there's a complete disconnect for her. Um, But the reason it was sort of uplifting at the end is because once she'd found out about this condition... Um, she realised that she can make self-portraits by touching her face and then drawing what she feels. So, because obviously she couldn't do that by just looking at herself because she doesn't recognise like what she sees in the mirror. Yeah. So So she doesn't really know what she looks like. No, she doesn't know what she looks like. Yeah. That's so crazy. Yeah. And um, a film's being made about her experiences apparently and she finds doing those self-portraits really cathartic. So I just thought that was lovely. Yeah, wow, amazing story. Um, And my second piece is about a perfume that has been developed that apparently recreates the smell of space. Whoa. I know, it's crazy. Okay, do you want to guess? Do you want to guess what it would be like? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm thinking something kind of fresh. Really? Yeah. Okay. Or either like something earthy. (laughs) Not nothing... Like a citrus or a flower. I'm thinking, no. th- like either damp, earthy, <laughs> or fresh. Okay, okay, nice. Wow, you had a lot of like perfume words to hand there. That was very impressive. Um, okay, so the way they describe it is called Erd Space, creative name. 
Um, and it's described as a rather pleasant metallic sensation similar to sweet-smelling welding fumes, burning metal, an acrid smell, walnuts, which I think is a wild card. That is... What do they smell of, walnuts? I... Off the top of my head, I couldn't say. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, continue. Um, Gunpowder, fruit, rum, and even burnt almond cookie. Okay, so I was completely wrong. Yeah, because that's a lot of sort of metallic and smells. nutty. I wasn't thinking yes, of Yes, we weren't thinking nutty. I'm, but surely the gunpowder and stuff is from the smell of the rockets. Yes, I think that is... The, I think the article says that the only time you can actually smell anything in space is when you're coming directly back in from a spacewalk. So part of the smell is surely the rocket itself yeah but then presumably some of those slightly more random smells fruit and rum that's crazy maybe that's what space smells like so yeah 29 dollars a bottle it's a bargain. bargain and it's being used to funded to fund like stem education programs so you know yeah catch me where an odor space yeah <laughs> smell the gunpowder from miles away <laughs> So, Jean, have you been to see any exhibitions recently? Oh, interesting you should ask that, Connie. Um, I have. I went to see the Andy Warhol exhibition at the Tate Modern um, last week, which I found really interesting, actually, because I very naively thought that... A little arrogant prick that I have. <laughs> I thought that I sort of knew what Andy Warhol was all about, basically, because those, those portraits of celebrities like Marilyn Monroe and the Elvis Presley with the kind of gunslinging shot and Marlon Brando I just thought I sort of knew what he was about and that he was into those mm. silk screens of famous celebrities and pop culture and pop art and all of that but I actually learned a lot from this exhibition um, about those things but also about other areas of his work that I just had no idea about so I sort of I was aware that those portraits of celebrities, especially with the colourful, you know, the Marilyn portrait with the colourful splodges of, um, yeah, like, on areas of her face. I always knew that was sort of a comment on, you know, everything can look really shiny and attractive, but it can also hide quite a troubling reality beneath the surface for super famous and successful people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this really famous canvas where that portrait is repeated in a grid, and oh, yeah. it fades from very colourful to then black and white. And by the end, her face kind of, there's splodges across it. And it's quite, it's sort of a quite disturbing image when it started off as something really appealing and polished. Um, but there was also stuff that I that I wouldn't have associated with Andy Warhol at all. He, he did a very similar thing of repeating certain clippings from the press um, but of quite disturbing images. So there are there are a few examples. One was he'd taken this newspaper shot of a woman who was falling from like a 14-storey building and she was committing suicide and this was printed in the newspaper. A picture of her. Yeah, wow. and just repeated it loads of times across this canvas, which was just really surprising because you would never see that now. No, um, and also, I guess, his his pictures of celebrities are so well-known because they're on, like, tourist stalls and, like, T-shirts a lot. Yeah. And whereas an image that was shocking, like like his newspaper clippings, obviously you wouldn't recreate that in, like, a commercial sense. No. So that was just, yeah, really interesting. Um, but then as soon as I started thinking what, what was the sort of meaning or message behind his art, I started kind of tying myself in knots because you would think that that those newspaper images were a criticism of mass media consumption basically that you're so obsessed with you know getting the next hit of being shocked and yeah appalled by these photos that you didn't really care about like the horrible events that they were portraying um but then there was also stuff that sounded like he really loved commercial culture and the consumerism that was associated with America so there was this quote from a blurb for one of his one of his pieces called green coca-cola bottles um where he said you can be watching tv and see coca-cola and you can know that the president drinks coke 
Liz Taylor drinks Coke and just think you can drink Coke. A Coke is a Coke and no amount of money can get you a better Coke. Which I I just thought that was interesting because it's like the opposite attitude that we have, well, or maybe that our generation has perhaps to like consumerism where we think it's like bad to just have stuff for the sake of having stuff yeah. and we're very aware of consumption yeah Yeah. of just consumption and that it's sort of like a trick that the market is playing on you that having more stuff isn't going to make you happier definitely (laughs) whereas he saw it as like this amazing almost democratic thing where it can make you feel like you're on the same level as Mm. these people who are higher up in the social hierarchy so I don't know it was just a very it was a very interesting exhibition because it taught me a lot that I didn't know already Shall we talk about Rob Delaney's vasectomy? We absolutely should. I'm so glad you asked. This was the article in The Guardian last week where Rob Delaney, who is an American comedian and actor, uh, wrote a piece about getting a vasectomy uh, fairly recently, which was absolutely fascinating, wasn't it? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I just really liked how he wrote about it because have you seen Catastrophe? Yeah, I have. Yes. Yeah. And his his tone in the article was so similar to his character in Catastrophe. Um, And I don't want to conflate the two because obviously Mm. he's an actor, like he's acting a character in Catastrophe, but it was a very similar combination of the, the bluntness about like bodily fluids and pain and all of this and family um, life essentially, but also shot through with, like moments of really poignant affection I thought about his wife and his kids I've I've thought about um using a quote from it uh where he says his wife's called Leah and he Mm -hmm. he writes Leah had taken birth control for decades which which is a giant pain in the ass and also decidedly sexist pharmacological slavery (laughs) that was so funny because I had that quote written down yeah well I just thought because it's so unusual to read from a man's perspective that level of empathy for what a woman has to do kind of just in her day-to-day life about her sexual agency so I just thought that was great and also again it's his tone of it's a giant pain in the ass like it's light-hearted and humorous but it's also incredibly kind and empathetic yeah I agree so much I I feel that that sentiment just made me like fall in love with him yeah I was like it's just so it's just what every woman wants to hear (laughs) Thank you for everything that you do for men. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think clearly his part of his purpose in writing the article was to, I don't know, open open people's eyes on how easy it is to get done, how straightforward, and surely partially that more people should have it, considering that it's a kind of a good solution at a certain age if you're in a stable relationship and you've had kids and all of that um so I felt like he was sort of he was taking quite a responsible stand from that perspective but it didn't come over as a particularly responsible way of writing yeah Mm. he did it in a humorous way Mm. it didn't sound like an advert no (laughs) yeah I agree I I really think I'm surprised that more men don't have them to be honest Mm. with you considering um that a lot of men know that they might never want children Mm. or when they've had children, mm. I just, I kind of, I just think men can be very protective over their yeah. reproductive organs. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I do understand, I, I mean, it is it is a major operation, but he did say, I think he only had a local anaesthetic. Yeah. So it wasn't, didn't have the risk of having a general anaesthetic. It's not like having a hysterectomy, which mm. would be a major operation. Mm. I actually don't know about the tubes inverted commas getting your tube side mm. what that involves no i don't um, either whether that is like the equivalent but vasectomies also can be reversible oh I really think, yeah they, apparently not always um and i think it depends on the case so you can't go into it basically thinking you're going to reverse mm. it because it might not be possible but like with with that in mind they do seem like a relatively good option mm. i think or maybe it happens more than we think but it's just not spoken about true actually because the maybe yeah. and again maybe that's his purpose in writing the article is kind of to get out in the open so it's something you could mention without people being like whoa yeah mm. and also because maybe men think it's kind of emasculating to have yeah. it or to talk about it that yeah I yeah think 
that is a good thing to mention. As opposed to just very sensible. Yeah. Straightforward. Mm. Conscientious with your contraception. Absolutely. <laughs> what a slogan. Well, thanks, Rob Delaney, for opening our eyes to that process. So we've talked a bit about uh, male genitalia with Rob Delaney. Mm. Shall we move on to the female body? Yes, yeah. let's. Um, this is Sally Hughes' article in British Vogue where she wrote about getting a breast reduction, um, which was really well written, I think, because she gives she gives the details for her reasons. She talks about the practicalities of the surgery, the process, her recovery, how painful it was, the scarring, etc. She also talks about the cost, which I think is quite unusual with mm. procedures like this. She says it cost 10k. Um, and I just thought it was really nice because she talks about it in a very down-to-earth and reasoned way where I feel like a lot of the discourse about women's bodies is so kind of hypercharged and extreme, whereas she, obviously, because it was her own body and her own decision, etc. Um, so it's just a very balanced account. Um, and, I mean, sadly, it just reveals the depressing fact of how much a woman's boobs are seen as part of her identity um I, I want to read a bit from the end um where she says this is after she's had the breast reduction most importantly I no longer feel as though my boobs are some assumed part of my identity like sarcasm loyalty and the ability to cook I just feel finally like me minus the baggage um which reminded me, have you seen Easy A with yeah, Emma Stone? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that bit? This is incredibly specific. Um, but there's a bit where she's on the phone to someone and she identifies her best friend as BIT, like with the acronym BT, but oh, said okay. BIT. And then her best friend's like, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? And Emma Stone's character is like, oh, don't worry, it means big tits. <gasps> and then her best friend is like thrilled that she's identified by that. Oh. But, but it was just exactly like what Sally Hughes is talking about is that your identifier is like your breast basically um but yeah I thought it was really interesting how um because I was kind of comparing this to have you watched Modern Family yeah um you know how the middle daughter Mm. um she's called Ariel Winter she had a breast reduction I think when she was 17 um and she was constantly in the daily mail if you have ever really? seen yeah and they everything she wore she'd be like paparazzi'd and she she obviously had really big boobs and it must have been so difficult for her i think growing mm. up on the show because she did i think she did it from like age 11 or something oh, God, to when yeah. she was grown up so that's like all your puberty years mm. people can just watch that mm. um yeah and she talked quite a lot about having it and i i feel that when the interview that i watched ages ago she really she had to just, I felt that she was justifying it by saying how much pain she was in. Yeah. She was like, oh, I was in a lot of pain. Um, you know, bra was really uncomfortable mm. and I had backache and stuff like that, which Sally Hughes also said in her article. But I think, I think there's definitely something to be said for like, you just don't like them. Yeah. Like, it's your body. Yeah. If you want to have breast reduction, I don't think you have mm. to say, oh, I was in crippling mm. pain to justify it. Yeah. Maybe, I'm, I mean, obviously. And equally, for her as well, if the paparazzi was hounding her essentially yeah. because of what her body shape was like, that's, I mean, she's taking agency and and yeah. trying to control her image in a way. I mean, yeah. Although I do definitely wouldn't um, advise getting on when you're that young because I think when you're mm. 17, you haven't really finished developing. So oh, of course. I, well, I think at that, at that age, they probably would get smaller afterwards because you're mm. like really in that hormonal phase oh, of course, in your late yeah. teens that it might... I don't know. I think things might change when you're 17. Yeah. I don't know if that's just completely inaccurate, but yeah, that's true. But I just thought it was it was really good for Vogue to run a piece like that because I think plastic surgery of all kinds, especially for women, is just so stigmatized. Yeah. And it was. I mean, it's similar to the Rob Delaney thing. It was. It was just very no nonsense and going through the process um, and giving her personal reasons. And it just made a lot of sense. And now I know far more about it than I would otherwise. Yeah. And it just shows that there's no reason to be judgmental about it either way. You know, it's people's independent choice. What have you been reading, Connie? 
Uh, well, I have a book that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about today. Um, well, now's the place. It's <laughs> my time to shine. Um, which is The Hungry Tide by Amitav Ghosh, uh, which is it's actually quite old. It's like 2004, not as modern as I thought it was. Um, I thought this would be a good, a good recommendation for anyone who's feeling maybe that a bit stir crazy in lockdown, mm. corona times, like not being able to travel. Um, because it, it's a, a South Asian novel set in the Sundarbans, mm. or Sundarbans, I don't know exactly how you pronounce it, but um, basically an area in West Bengal and Bangladesh, um, which here, Gosh refers to it as like tide country, mm. but it's really cool if you look at it on a map, um, because it's basically like an area of land that's kind of saturated by rivers mm. that like flow through it. Um, they kind of look like veins or something, mm. which, is, which is very cool. Um, and it's just such a different environment to the one that we're living in, like mm. in London in lockdown. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's a really interesting book. Um, it's basically a network narr- narrative which involves both like urban characters and um, like subaltern characters. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's is that a word that you would normally use or is that no? Language? What does that mean? Um, I'm worried I'm going to get the definition wrong now. It's basically a literary theory term for characters who were like. I would say third world mm. uh, disadvantaged mm. characters, often like women as well, because they're like even more okay. disadvantaged, I guess. Yeah, it's from an essay by uh, Gayatri Spivak called Can the Subaltern Speak? If anyone's interested in that. Um, Woo! Yeah. Coming in here with the <laughs> technical knowledge. Can you English <laughs> knowledge in there? Um, yeah, basically it's like, so marginalised voices. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, marginalised is probably a good way to describe it. People who you wouldn't normally hear about in a book, basically. Right. Not white, not mm. got access to the greatest education. That kind of vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's got both, like, some urban people and those kind of people. Mm. Um, and the, it basically follows, like, a marine biologist who goes to this area to study, um, like, dolphins. Um, but it's really interesting, and the most interesting thing about it, I thought, was um, a part of the story about this massacre on an island called, like, Marich Jappy. I'm definitely not pronouncing that right, mm. by the way. Um, in which up to, like, a thousand, one thousand uh, refugees who were untouchables or Dalit people, so they were from, like, the lower castes mm. in India, um, settled on, like, reserved forest land, which was land, is land, like, meant for tigers. Mm. Uh, because basically this area, like, the Sundarbans, they have these, like, a lot of tigers. I'd Actually, mm. now I don't think they have as many because of, I mean, humans. Um, but the tigers are supposed to be um, especially vicious there. Oh, God. So, um, basically, I just thought the perspective was really interesting as, like, a Western person from England to see... Um, from the perspective of people that actually live with tigers, how tigers can be super vicious and can kill people and are a huge threat to people that live around them, basically. Mm. These tigers, apparently, there are, like, numerous theories to why they might be more vicious, but they don't just kill when they're provoked. Like, they will come and hunt the the people in the village. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, And so this, like, the refugees had settled on the land reserved for tigers and were, like, murdered by the state, basically, massacred because they had moved onto land that was meant for the tigers and this was historically accurate yeah this is a real thing that happened i think it was in the 1970s uh which you can look up and uh gosh or gosh i don't know how you say it sorry amitav gosh he's like a historian as well so often his novels are like based on real historical events yeah um yeah but it's really interesting i've got a good quote uh from one of the characters who's um like she was one of the refugees um which is, this island has to be saved for its trees. It has to be saved for its animals. It is a part of a reserve forest. It belongs to a project to save tigers, which is paid for by people from all around the world. Every day, sitting here with hunger gnawing at our bellies, we would listen to these words over and over again. Who are these people, I wondered, who love animals so much that they are willing to kill us for them? Do they know what is being done in their name? Yeah, Yeah. that's so interesting, isn't it? Because there's so many of those kind of sponsor a tiger or sponsor a mm. polar bear and it's and you like we're so removed from it and so kind of underinformed about the local habitat and interaction with humans that obviously from our position we just think great let's sponsor a tiger and 
and that will be kind of a smooth operation and we're doing good in the world and we feel great about ourselves etc but Mm. obviously everything has a knock-on effect that yeah yeah I agree so much and I think um what you just said about feeling good about ourselves and Mm. guilt has so much to do with it because I think we have so much guilt about um the effect we have on the environment Mm. and what we've done and and colonialism and stuff Mm. like that so we think oh we'll just donate some money yeah and it's our fault humans fault that the tigers Mm. are being extinct so we need to like give them money but then we don't yeah we don't realize what's being what is being done in their name Mm. literally as that um quote said so yeah i just thought it was a really interesting different perspective that i really never thought about um and then i also wondered if if people knew would they actually save the people because yeah. they're like untouchables from a low yeah. caste? Like, would Western people care about mm. those kind of people? So yeah, big yeah. questions. But I just thought it was a really, really different book for me to read because I don't usually read like ecological mm. novels or like novels with loads of description because I'm mm. more of a character person when mm. I read. But the characters are really interesting as well. Mm. So yeah, I'd highly recommend *The Hungry Tide*. Beautiful. <laughs> I've read a book that I think you will love, Connie, The Hungover Games by Sophie Hayward, which is her memoir of when she got accidentally pregnant um, from an acquaintance in her mid-30s uh, when she was a music journalist in LA. And she decides to have the baby. And essentially, it's about her being just a hot mess through the whole process. But what what comes through is her humour and her resilience and her bravery in, you know, just navigating the nightmare that is being a single mom. And also she has financial struggles and she has to move from LA to London and she lives in this place that she calls Piss Alley because it's like, (laughs) yeah, it's not actually called that, but. um, So yeah, it's a really good read. I, I liked it because it just busts open the myth that your life needs to be completely together and completely perfect before you have a baby. Um, Because she sort of shows that it can turn out absolutely fine, even if, you know, not everything has gone exactly to plan up to that point. Um, She has some really entertaining anecdotes. The funniest is when she's at a fancy dinner in LA and she's announced to the people there that she's pregnant. And she, so she goes to the toilets and these women like patting her belly and like asking her questions about it, etc. And then they allow her to go ahead of them in the queue because she's pregnant, obviously. And then she gets into the cubicle and she just does a massive fart. And she realises that it was essentially like her bloat was basically just like from this calzone that she's just eaten and not from Oh my God, and it's not the baby. <laughs> so funny. So there's stuff like that that just really made me laugh. Um, and... There's kind of excerpts from interviews she had with celebrities in Hollywood, which is always interesting, um, kind of alongside her her personal life that's spiralling in the background. That's really cool. Um, but there's this one bit that I, I... It was so perfect when I read it. I just knew that you'd love it. I I'm hope so this is going to be you when slash if you have a baby. So <laughs> she's talking about how... Kind of a theme throughout it is how she's very conscious that her experience of pregnancy and raising her daughter is not like the fairy tale narrative that everyone thinks, you know, is it yeah, is yeah. a template that everyone is kind of tricked into thinking um would be perfect. Um so she's talking about the kind of nice houses in Richmond and the fancy storybook places. And she says when she's breastfeeding her daughter in this piss alley flat um or house, she says I could forget about them and instead turn on the false moon that was my iPhone and the baby and I would listen to Drake rapping so sweetly about all the bitches he knew and how it was late at night that he should probably call one of them and get his dick sucked. Oh, babe. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's the best thing Isn't it? It's so good. And then a couple of paragraphs later, she kind of goes into it a bit more and she says, So I tune into Drake who didn't seem entirely certain where he was calling from either. He'd be singing in a droney monotone about these girls who should reply to his text more quickly. How he's the only Canadian rapper who made it big and bought his mum a house and now she's lonely on the rich side of town. How he doesn't feel enough of his feelings. 
his late night ennui would would seep out of my phone and I'd be able to feel just the right amount of mine, a regulated amount of sadness, a slick corporate release of pain. Because everyone talks about a baby bringing new life, but less about the grief this creates in you when part of you, your old life, has to die to create it. Oh my god! I know, isn't that a brilliant piece of writing? That's amazing. And all from the springboard of Drake. I just love the image of someone breastfeeding listening to Drake. Because it is so appropriate, because it's such like... Especially, I assume this was a few years ago, so I assume that's like his first mixtape, which is such a kind of self-indulgent, like, melancholy. Yeah. I can think of so many songs yeah. when he repeats those exact yeah. sentiments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just that, the idea of his of his whole vibe really aligning with her experience as, like, a pregnant woman and then a breastfeeding woman in London. It's just... Yeah. It's it's, it's incongruous, but it really works. I just loved it. That sounds amazing. Welcome to From A-List to Gen Z. The segment where we talk in detail about the wild, wild world of celebrities. So first on the agenda is Miley Cyrus on the Call Her Daddy podcast, which I think is a podcast about dating and sex and sex positivity. So great for us that Miley decided to go on that because we get a little insight into her personal life, uh, which is good for us nosy people. (laughs) Um, It was interesting listening to it, though. I felt very British. Yeah, I I felt the same because yeah. I don't listen to very many American podcasts. So yeah. it's kind of a first-ish for yeah. me, I'd say. And the way they spoke about sex, there was a lot of kind of... The host, Alexandra Cooper, would often be like, yes, girl, like, you're, you're mm-hmm. so empowered. And it was very positive, but it made me realise that when we discuss sex, even just, like, among our friends or something it's often tainted with quite a lot of humour. Yeah, and like, self-depreciation as yeah, well. Yeah, like not at anyone else's expense, but just no, yeah. it's jokey in how we discuss it, which maybe hides like a little bit of, I don't know, embarrassment. Yeah. yeah, like that kind of British reserve. But there was not a shred of that no. on this at all, um, which was amazing. So it was also funny because I felt at times that they're well, not the host, but Miley Cyrus's kind of Californian attitude really came through. Did you hear that bit where she basically said that she was looking for a partner who was into clean eating? Yeah. And I just thought that was so funny because it's just not on my agenda at all. <laughs> it was, yeah. I, actually, I quite... That bit was probably one of my favourite really? things that she said. Not that specific phrase but I did think when she was talking about what she was looking for in a partner mm. sorry we've really jumped that's like right at the end of mm. what she says but I quite liked the way she um she had quite thought out rules yes not rules but qualities that she was looking for in a partner yeah and that she wasn't really willing to compromise on and she was like oh I, I understand that you know as a sober person if I want to find someone who's also sober I'm not gonna, probably not going to meet them in a club yes that was quite realistic and I think not a bad example for like no. other younger girls who were looking to get in a relationship to like, have principles that they want yeah. the other person to embody. Yeah, whatever. absolutely. Well, I just, it's always sort of good to know what you're looking for as long as it's not too restrictive. And mm. I thought it was interesting when she said that she'd been through loads of therapy because the kind of things she was saying really came across as someone who had done a lot of introspection and like yeah. honestly thinking about their desires and their aims and everything. Um the bit that made the headlines was when she said that she lost her virginity to a guy when she was 16 and, quotes, ended up marrying him, which was obviously Liam Hemsworth. Um, but even that was quite touching because she said that she pretended that she had had sex before. Yeah, because um, she was embarrassed. Yeah, exactly. Aww. So it's like, it's I don't know. It's interesting that, she, that she's okay with revealing such kind of personal information because that's normally the kind of stuff that you feel like celebrities really want to keep under wraps yeah definitely she Um, did say she was liking doing podcasts didn't she because she felt a bit more free yeah and that you have to listen to it in its entirety in a way whereas she was saying with like tv slots on like talk shows they can edit what you say so much and you're only on for like a few minutes so you just have to get your point across really quickly whereas on a podcast you can kind of explore 
all the facets of what you're saying. Yeah. Um, some of it was also just really funny though. When she talks about how in real life, well, firstly, she was like, she was really into like penises as decor. Oh yeah. She kept yeah. saying that she would buy dildos not to use them, but just to sort of put them like as objects around her house. Yeah, and she was saying she loves the classical archaeology and stuff. Yes, of penises. penises. So each to their own. I mean, fair enough. But then she said how in real life she finds dicks really ugly and off-putting and was like, she just wants it to go inside as soon as possible so it gets out of her face. <laughs> Which was quite funny. I know, it's really funny. Um, and she, like, she was so upfront. When she said she, she can't be bothered with foreplay, essentially... And this is a quote, I don't have time to sit around and flick my pussy. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. And I thought it was really interesting how she equated sex with her, like, business. Yes. And how she was like, I don't tease my music yes. um, on Instagram or whatever. So I don't, like, that's, like, how I don't, like, foreplay. I just want to get to it. Yeah, but she kept doing that. She really did make a strong analogy between, like, being a go-getter in a business sense like and go yeah bedroom. but also like kind of straight to the point and effective and efficient almost yeah. it was very interesting um it's quite an unusual attitude to sex i think yeah i think it is want to be efficient yeah quick yeah but then again i was thinking maybe if you're that successful like her attitude to life is probably just so different from anyone we know or anyone we'd mm. come across so it makes sense that her sexuality might also reflect that um and her point that I think the main point that she wanted to make, which was um, about when she had recently divorced from Liam Liam Hemsworth, and those paparazzi shots of her like on a boat with Caitlin Carter came out, mm-hmm. um, and the press like went for her and said that she was disloyal because she was moving on too fast, etc. And she was basically saying that she thought that was a complete gender bias, and that if she was a man, no one would have yeah, no one would have batted an eyelid. Um, which again is an interesting point um, and the best part of that I think was when she said that she had chosen to address that in her music in her new track Midnight Sky where she says um, that she can't bite the quotes devil on my tongue that's a lyric from the song um, and that refers to her wanting to respond to the negative media coverage but knowing that it will backfire, essentially, yeah. because they just hound you, whatever you say. Um, so, but again, that sort of links back to the therapy point, is then she's clearly had to think about that kind of thing so much and had to choose to take the high road um, so that she's now in a place where when she speaks about it, it's from a very kind of... She's just very certain about what she thinks, I thought. Yeah, I agree. I think... Yeah, I thought... I was quite surprised at some points at how, yeah, thought out her responses mm. were. Um, I do remember when the story came out about her moving on. And I, d- I feel quite bad because I think I judged her a little bit, not for getting with a girl or getting with anyone, but just I did think it was quite quick. Mm. But considering they'd got, they'd been married and stuff. Mm. But I just, I don't think there's really ever a perfect time in these situations. Mm. Like when is a good time to move on? Yeah. It's just when you're ready, isn't it? And I think that's the whole point about celebrity culture is that we, I feel like I often do this. You sort of project what you would think if someone you knew did Mm. that. But if it's someone you know, then you know the backstory and you know the context and you know how they're feeling at any given point. Whereas projecting that onto a celebrity where you know literally nothing apart from the fact that she's been married it's it's so this is why it's so fascinating is because it's so easy to feel like you have an insight into what's going on but you essentially never do (laughs) and then listening to her on this podcast was interesting because she's providing that insight but from a completely different perspective um so it's actually more legitimate to form opinions on what she said in this podcast than like anything else yeah so it's good that she, like, had that platform in a way. Yeah. And now, on to Whack or Woke, where we rewatch pre-2010 TV series and films. And see how they hold up from a Gen Z perspective. So today we're revisiting Sex and the City, that defining series of many women's lives. Um, And there's a lot to talk about. There are many episodes we could choose. Mm -hmm. Um, But first of all, I think we've got to say 
which characters we are. I think we should say what we think the other person is and then we should think what, what we are. Okay. So I think you're definitely a mixture of Carrie and Samantha. Do you think? Yes. A killer combo. Love it. How interesting. Yeah, I think I'm definitely a lot of Carrie, even though she annoys me yeah. so much. Like, I see her and I'm like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> I'm also like, that's me, you know? <laughs> For you, okay, I'm agonising over this this decision. <laughs> because I feel like there's so many aspects of them that you could be. Okay. I guess I am quite a complex yeah. person. <laughs> just got so many sides, so many facets to you. I'm thinking... In some ways, I'm going to have to say Charlotte. Absolutely. Okay. Because you're just prim and proper. Yeah. And that is just your vibe. Absolutely. I feel that that has lessened over the time that I've known you, though. Yeah. Oh, that's true, agree? actually. I feel like in sick form. Yeah. You're more... And also, I used to wear those little collars and stuff. That's exactly Absolutely. what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And then, okay, your second person, I'm thinking either Carrie... I think it's Carrie. Ooh, okay, or I was thinking could be Miranda because she had not in many aspects, but just in the hardworking vibes. Yeah, well, I was going to say for me, I would want to be a Carrie and a Miranda, but I know that I'm a Carrie and a Charlotte. Okay. And I'm okay with that. Okay. I'm, I wish I'd gone with my gut. My gut was those <laughs> two. And then I was like, oh my God, no, I think she thinks she's Miranda. <laughs> Why did I think that? Okay. No, I'm not a fool. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, right. So let's move on to. The episode which is season three episode four um i'm just going to do a run through of the plot developments so in this episode carrie is dating sean um who is 26 and which is seen as like too young for her and is bisexual which we'll come on to as an issue throughout the episode um charlotte has sex with an artist who photographs women in male drag Samantha hires, fires, and sleeps with an assistant, all in the space of half an hour. And yeah. Miranda is freaking out about Steve moving into her flat. So that's the scene setting. Mm-hmm. And I think we should just really delve into the whole bisexuality yes. issue and how it's discussed, because that is the most surprising thing for me, watching it now. Yeah. Um, also, interestingly... Sean, who Carrie's dating, is the same actor who plays Tad from Friends. Oh my god, that is exactly what I thought yeah. when I saw him. I was just like, oh my god, it's Tad! Overlap! <laughs> and he plays quite a similar character. Really, I know! He's the younger, hot, new yeah. guy that doesn't laugh very long. Yeah! <laughs> Bless him. Yeah. Um, so, basically, he says that he's bisexual to Carrie. He mentions that he's had a long-term relationship with a guy. Um, and then when Carrie is talking to her friends about it, she says that the weird thing is that he was so open about it. Yeah, I pick, definitely picked up on that moment. And um, Miranda's saying to her, of course it's a problem. Yes, I know. To sexuality. That's the interesting thing is that they all, each character, when they're discussing it, they all think it's weird, apart mm. from Samantha who... Yeah, Samantha's the only one. But her being, quote, okay with it isn't presented as, like, a particularly, what we'd call, woke attitude it's because she thinks it's like really sexually exciting yeah so it isn't even like she's she has a different take it's just that she's a bit more out there and that's why she thinks it's fine which is i don't know i found that quite surprising for a show that was set in new york in the early Mm. noughties but then i don't know i think it does really um show us basically how being bisexual um has just become so much more of an accepted thing and i think that has actually even only happened in the last like five to ten years to be yeah. honest because I think even my parents generation I don't know anyone that's that age that identifies as bi Actually, openly yes. and that hasn't maybe chosen or maybe it's just because it's a given when you've reached a certain age that you've chosen maybe your life partner yeah and like we wouldn't say oh are you yeah like, what's your sexuality because we just see them with a man and yeah. think oh he's gay or oh she's yeah straight yeah that is interesting isn't it um, but it's quite extreme how yeah. negative they view. I mean, Carrie says bisexuality is a layover on the way to gay town. <laughs> Just imagining someone someone I saying know. that now. Okay, it would actually. It was twenty years ago, but yeah, yeah, crazy. And when the other interesting thing is that she, they seem to view Sean's bisexuality as a byproduct of his age. 
because yeah. it's like linked to the fact that he's so young so it's almost they portray it as if it's his like exploring phase or like experimenting phase when like he never says that he just says i'm bi he's yeah. not like oh i'm trying stuff out um yeah i thought that was really interesting especially because they talk about how they're a different generation with a different mm. letter um and even at the end when she kind of makes a decision mm. to like not continue the relationship it's linked with her being an old fart and yeah it's kind of like are you just intolerant of bisexual yeah. people or do you think you're too old for people who haven't made up their mind yeah quotes made thing. up your mind yeah, yeah. It's, it's very strange isn't it that that's i well i think from the perspective of when this episode came out it was it was potentially quite nuanced to link it to age because it probably was yeah it's probably coming like the the next generation Mm. were going to be more open about Mm. it and they knew that maybe Mm. but maybe their their viewer like the target viewer of sex and city Mm. was probably not cool with it yeah yeah exactly maybe it reflected views at a time and it's also interesting how throughout the episode they they lump sexuality in with gender and like really blur the boundaries between those two quite separate entities so like Charlotte dresses up in male drag, like with this artist guy mm-hmm. um, photographing her, um, which is sort of taken because it's all in this like themed episode. It's taken as if that's also a, a kind of side project of bisexuality, yeah. but that's a very different thing. I mean, that's about gender. That's not necessarily about sexuality at all. Um, but there seems to be no recognition that there's a difference yeah there i think that was interesting because it's something i quite like about sex and city how it will often be the episode is themed Mm. and everyone in the series is like experiencing the theme in some way but it also links to like the overall plot of Mm. the series but i think this episode they kind of got that wrong yeah in that there wasn't really that clear like there was clear that that it was clear that there was a link but the link was definitely confused like you just said and uh, especially samantha's storyline where she just had it hired an assistant yeah who was like super macho and mm. had lots of bravado and then fired him and had sex with him mm. it's kind of like what did that really have to do yeah. with, <laughs> with the whole bisexual thing when it was meant to be that both of them were like the alpha in the relationship yeah but then she yeah. basically showed that she couldn't work with other alphas yeah was does that mean she's the alpha but then she was like no i'm really sexually attracted to him being an mm. alpha so everything with like the social gender norms were mm. like just put straight back. Yeah, exactly. They were. In some ways, they were reasserted. Although a special shout out to Samantha's outfit in that scene because she's. Did you notice she's wearing a pink leather jacket, mm. a snakeskin pink top, and like a bright green skirt. Wow, what a vibe! Love the the fashion choices. Like a beautiful, stylish Barbie. <laughs> um. And there's also some classic Charlotte quotes. This is the type of, this is the side of Charlotte that I don't identify with. Oh, yeah, you know, when she's talking to the artist and she says, oh, I could never dress up as a man because I'm really bad at math and I can't change a oh tyre to save my life. The bad at math thing really oh, annoyed me. That's terrible. the attitude that has held us back so long. <laughs> Come on, Charlotte. Although I am bad at math. Yeah, that. so am I, but no, and I can't change ask. a tire, but I wouldn't say that. Yeah, as, you unfortunately, know. we can't give. Yeah, <laughs> we can't give that definition of backseat criticism. Yeah. yeah, another thing that I found annoying was the whole spin the bottle scene at the end. <gasps> of course, yeah, and how they basically so to set the scene, Carrie's going to I want to say tag. That's not mm. his name, Sean. Sean uh, party, and it's with all his friends who are a bit younger. And it basically turns out that they're all also bi. A lot of mm. them have had, like, same-sex relationships or had previously been with each other. So it's kind of a yes. slightly convoluted situation. His ex is there, but she's now with a woman and they mm. have a baby and all this kind of vibe, mm. um, which Carrie calls a sexual poo-poo platter, I think. A poo-poo platter of sexual yes. orientation. Um, and they want to play spin the bottle. And Carrie can't believe it. She's like, wow, seventh grade spin the bottle. Yeah. Um, and then they all just want to get with each other regardless yeah. of the gender. That annoyed me, I think, because I I just feel that that attitude um, kind of perpetuates the idea that bisexual people are just promiscuous and they yeah. just want to get with anyone. Yeah, and when earlier when they were talking about it and Miranda said, like, it's just greedy yeah. to be bisexual, that it really entrenches 
that attitude which is that it's actually nothing to do with their sexual orientation like they're just really horny yeah they're just free <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah anything with a pulse yeah like, exactly it's a really bad attitude i thought yeah and then carrie slinks off after she's like she has a really awkward kiss with a girl during mm. the spin the bottle where like she, her lip like trembles but she barely moves <laughs> she keeps her eyes open yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then she like slinks off down the staircase. So, yes, it is interesting to watch to watch Sex and the City in twenty twenty, and I think it's a very different experience from what it was originally. And even I'm not sure how much I picked up on this when I first watched it, when which would have been like I don't know eight years ago or something. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It just shows how quickly these things are moving. Yeah, and I just really wish I was saying to you, really wish they would make it now. Yeah, like, remake, remake it. it. Yeah, with kind of more modern a little bit yeah. more modern take on a few things more like diverse really cast mm, definitely and maybe more financially accurate i know that's like a really basic criticism of sex and the city but honestly how does she afford all those clothes honestly that i have no clue so jar how would you rate that episode on a scale of whack to woke um i'd say it was a medium rare um <laughs> <laughs> It's not as it's not as bad as it could have been, but it is pretty consistently cringe the whole way through. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that one. Nice. Thanks for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. Tune in next time for another episode of From A to Gen Z. 